So what else? What else is new with everybody? Uh, I have nothing new because I'm trapped in in school now. I'm just gonna say my 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 new thing is is new for me for the first time and probably. Gosh, maybe 17 years, I've actually filed my tax return on time. Well, you mean at the final deadline on time, like October 15th? or Well, October or? 15th for California, because we were impacted by the wildfires, the entire uh, state got advanced to October 15th. My, my federal returns have not gotten in before October 15th in the last 20 years. Really? Doesn't that so. stress you out? <laughs> no. Oh, my God. <laughs> so otherwise, I have to do the estimated quarterly payments. Well, I'm just saying the most bougie thing ever. My people do that. Thanks. <laughs> Welcome to Transpose, a podcast about understanding the rapid shifts in technology, business, and society. We explore key changes in what's new, what it all means, and where we're going. I'm Maximus, your AI-generated disembodied voice, here to introduce your favorite collection of innovators, futurists, and ne'er-do-wells, Anju Ahuja, Justin Dabb, and Sean Layden. Let's get started. Carry on, you overpaid jackasses. All right, so today we're talking about disruption. Uh, it's a buzzword, right, in venture capital and in business in general. But we don't want to talk just about what disruption is. We want to know if it's time to disrupt disruption. What I mean about that is that, of course, you know, the original phrase was kind of popularized by uh, Clayton Christensen in, in The Innovator's Dilemma. And he really talks about it as it's a process by which a product or service initially takes kind of root in a simple application at the bottom of a market, typically by being less expensive or more accessible. And then, of course, you watch those development curves and, and the, that, that low uh, market offering begins to move up market, eventually displacing the establishment and uh, you know when the, and it runs across that good enough for everyone line, mm -hmm. and then suddenly you find um, you know larger competitors with their pants down. <laughs> so I guess my first thing I want to talk about is I have a lot of opinions, right? Or what I've seen, how this term is used these days. But I mean, when you guys think of it, how's this definition evolved since it was popularized, and how is it being used today? And I'll I'll go as far as saying. I think it's being bastardized. Oh, I was going to say that. Fine. All right. Well, good. You say it. I can edit. No, you said it well. It's, it's totally bastardized. It means nothing anymore other than somebody entered a space and tried to shake it up. And shake it up, very loose term. I, I mean, I really think it's meaningless. D disruption really came into vogue, I'm guessing, largely with what happened on the West Coast, Silicon Valley, tech running really hard, you know, run fast, break things, all those kinds of mantras that came around during the tech space. Disruption was seen as a as a good thing, almost without exception. Supporting your point, I think that's how it got adopted. Richardson mm -hmm. started talking about this. He was looking back at industries that it just happened to them because there were smart people saying there's a market here that's being underserved. One of his examples, right, is the steel industry with micro uh, foundries and things like that that kept chipping away at the you know what the as you pointed out earlier commodity rebar was the first one. <laughs> They're like, we can make rebar and make money. And the large foundries are like, all yours. <laughs> mm. You know, like we make like 6% margin on that. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, you have it. Uh, and then they just kept going up and up and up in quality and, and reliability. And when he was looking back at these industries, it wasn't the tech industry per se. Um, 
of course, the other classic one is hard drives mm -hmm. for um, microcomputers versus mainframes, right? So people start making the five megabyte, you know, hard drives that weren't quite big enough for the mainframes, but of course they kept getting bigger and faster and cheaper, and uh, eventually they were sized that you could throw them into mainframes, personal computers, whatever. Is there a sense that disruption carries with it the meaning that something that had not been before? like something completely new and different where a lot of innovation can just be, you know, gradual improvement and efficiency yeah. and, and cost reduction and Kaizen and all that kind of stuff yeah. Yeah. across, across a known category. But disruption is this thing that comes out of nowhere. Like, um, like, you know, say what you will about the business model, but Uber was disruptive. It came in and said, we find yeah. all of these, um, black limos out there want to arbitrage their downtime. Let's put an app out there that was, let's everyone play against that. And, create something that had not existed before. So that's not necessarily by its nature disruption, something that hasn't existed before. Uh, it's how it fits into a business model that mm -hmm. makes it disruptive innovation versus sustaining innovation, right? Uh, that idea could have been sustaining innovation for the uh, incumbents, right? The mm -hmm. cab companies. Right. It, it, it doesn't take much. It really doesn't take much. And they all, there could have, I don't know if there's an association for the, uh, cab companies but they could have had an app and they do now yeah i uh, use it it's, it's funny that you bring that example up sure the market is right we do need ride sharing I, I think that is on point i don't love the uber app i don't love the experience of being told i'm going to know like who my driver is in like 20 seconds and waiting around for three minutes to figure out if i'm actually going to make the cut i don't like the rating system you know a couple of people once gave me a bad review i'm really polite and i give everybody five stars and i over tip not that they know that and that doesn't influence things but i kind of really resent the uber app and i've moved to lyft and other services because i feel like the app is a horrible experience which gets me to a point that I've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks in preparation for us chatting today. I think disruption might be a means to an end, but I don't think it can be an end. And I think with a lot of venture-backed companies, it tends to be viewed as the end as opposed to create a really great product that is lucrative and like really harness the potential of a customer segment that loves and adores you and won't live without you. And I do not think Uber has done that. I don't think I, I think Lyft is closer to doing that, although I think financially they've got their own struggles and I don't think they handled scale properly. But that, that's that's my view, that disruption is maybe a means to an end. And I think you can only look back in time and call something disruptive. I'm going to throw this out there that all of this generative AI is not disruptive. Innovation. Totally agree. It's going to lead to incremental innovations in search. It's going to be a sustaining innovation for the major players that are out there. Yeah. There's no barrier to entry, really, other than money. Um, and you know, Microsoft's a great example, right? They saw this thing coming up, they gave them $10 billion and now word is going to help you write your next business correspondence. When I look at the tra trajectory of generative AI, it's infrastructure. It is not an end product. Um, it's going to be in word. It's going to be in, um, all of Adobe's, you know, like software. Now, does it replace, I would say marginal, uh, illustrators out there? Absolutely. Um, you know, I won't be hiring my nephew to be doing my church newsletter, uh, graphics. You weren't going to hire him anyway. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't be associated with a church either. So that's, <laughs> that's a, that's another issue, but it's not likely going to replace an illustrator where there's a high expected return from exceptional work. Hey, so can I, can I change the lens from AI? So I was thinking about this. Yeah, please. 
when I read the, the definition of disruption, a lot of it spoke to market dominance, right? Like reshaping a market or making a new market and being the dominant player in that market, which is why you have all the regulators worried about predatory behavior. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. But I think it's more important, especially in an environment where resources are so expensive, interest rates are high, talent is like, you know, reluctant to relocate because houses are, interest rates are high, they don't want to sell their house and buy a new one. Everything's expensive, capital's expensive, everything's expensive. And if your stock is worth nothing, you're going to have to compensate people with cash to get them to keep the job that they used to do for, you know, a lot more in comp, total comp. For a promise of future stock price increases. For a promise, Yes. So that got me thinking that a lot of the tech industry has migrated towards monetizing users as their path to growth, as opposed to creating a really supremely valuable product, and that the framework should be about what is a great product and how do you use it as your core growth engine and the core driver of value versus market dominance, which a lot of the recent tech companies have been all about the more users you have, the more you are dominant in the market. And I think that Rather than thinking about it as disrupting the market, we should be thinking about satisfying users in a new and unique way, which sounds like very old school. That sounds like business. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and it got me thinking, how many tech companies do we know that are post-Series B that actually have a corporate strategist or a, an accomplished, qualified corporate development officer on the scene? They don't. They just sit around doing their thing. And then maybe somebody brings that person in when they need to rationalize something but you really want that person in to guide the growth of a company, especially when resources are expensive in this macro environment. I agree. And so, you know, we talked about Uber earlier, right? Uber burned through $35 yeah. billion in capital before they had one profitable And it's quarter. still a crappy product. It's not just a crappy product. I mean, like that profitable quarter was, I think, you know, $120 million. I'm sure those books are cooked a little bit so they could have a profitable quarter. But if you start thinking about that, then how long is it going to take them to get that $35 billion back, um, you know, in equity, basically? <laughs> and never. Never. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, if I'm investing in these companies and they don't have a viable business model, and I'm going to throw it out there, Uber still does not have a viable business model. It doesn't scale. It, it, you know, it's, it's not a tech company. It's a labor-driven company, and the labor is pissed. Yeah, and this we can see this now. Maybe this is, goes to you know Anju's point that you really can't define a disruptive event unless you see it in the rearview mirror. You can't define it, you know, in the in the for in the foreground. But you know, whether it's Uber, whether it's Spotify, which also really hasn't made any money in its entire existence, or more recently, you know, Unity is all over the press and they haven't made money in the nineteen years of its existence. Um, it's because they were all grown up in that age of. It was all about growth. It's all about what's your what's what's your MAU, what's your DAU. Right. You know, how's how fast are you growing? Are you getting more subscribers, getting more users, getting more time for engagement? Yeah, way too much emphasis on Maldo and, and not why people are engaging. But keep going, yes. And and now the price of now now that money costs something, you know, money's no longer free. Um, I can actually get four and a half percent on a savings account with a local bank. I mean, it's it's nuts, right? So in this world now, all of that, all of that free flow of capital that had been, you know, funding that burst for the last 10, 15 years, it's all come to this point where people are going, don't tell me a growth story. Tell me a profitability Although story. Although it's kind of late, and to right? Your point, so Angie, many private equity and venture investors well, were about funding growth and it's to what end? Yeah, but go ahead, yeah. Sean. Sorry. Well, because, because they thought that they just, they just grow, you increase valuations and we, you know, extract our, our, our money from this hyper, you know, valuation for the company. Um, 
But now they're going for the profitability story. And to your point, those teams aren't built to protect that story. Right. Those teams are built to go grab more money out there, not worrying about what we're burning or how much it's costing. Right. You know, it only cost me two hundred dollars to make a hundred dollars. That's right. Yeah. How long can you sustain spending $200 to make $100? That, that reminds me of people when they're walking through, you know, walking along the strip in Las Vegas and, you know, on, on the casinos, it says, you know, 98% payback, 95% pay, like, like looking for the higher percentage that's still going to be below 100, right. ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> it means you're losing 2%, 5%. And that's when we came up with LTV, right? Lifetime value. Uh-huh. Yep. Mm-hmm. If we start talking about lifetime value, you can start making some crazy decisions about your product pricing because you're saying, well, in 24 months, the lifetime value of the customer I capture is going to cover these costs it took me to make this thing happen. You'd sell a game console at a loss, but if you sold five games or four games or three games at the same time that you sold the console, the blended margin would make you profitable. See, that's another great point. No, and so, so that, but that's a real short runway. It's like game console here. Game software there, bundle it together, I made a profit. If you're doing lifetime value, that if I sell this thing into this home, if I get some subscriptions against that, the lifetime value in 36 months will cover the cost of customer acquisition or in 10 months or in 14 months. Lifetime value is only theoretical. Lifetime value stops when your customer says, I can't afford to buy eggs, or I can't afford to fill my car with gas, or I can't afford to do this other thing now. So I'm off your lifetime value curve. I'm punching out. Or when you don't exceed their expectations, right? Meet or exceed. And I do think exceed is a good target. It's interesting that you say that because when I talk to people that are in larger corporate entities, customer segmentation sits in marketing and it's largely leveraged for advertising, for promotional structure, for go-to-market, for new products. Customer segmentation actually belongs in strategy because believe it or not, it is okay to fire some sets of customers that don't make you money, that don't love your product, that are just like a drag to carry on. And I, I'm not saying it's a nice thing to do. I'm sure some people will feel like it's, you know, it's unfortunate that their needs aren't being met. But trying to like do a peanut butter approach to the market and trying to be something to everybody is it's ridiculous. So, and I don't see a lot of companies actually putting that discipline into place where they're saying we only want to serve these segments because these customer segments are lucrative. You know, give us a good ROI and allow us to make the best possible product for their needs. You mean Apple? Yeah, that's. <laughs> I think that's one of their strongest skill sets. They they know how to make Absolutely. their products growth engines for the company to fund other great products that are all targeting the same set of users. And it only expands a little bit over time. What I love about how they've used that, though, they figured out how to attract developers too over time. So it used to be just consumer, right? But now they're actually much more complex and they got developers right too. People can complain about the toll all day long that they have to pay to be in the store, but they got it right. Yeah. So they make a lot of really great and valuable products and the new Vision Pro. I think that it- Hey, you've got to get into a tech early if you're going to be there 20 years from now. I think that's there for the developers and I think it's there for them to figure it out. I, I don't know if yeah I I've said it too. That's a dev platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. yeah that's not for for, for sure. the consumer. So I want to not, not wanna, that price point certainly. No, I want to reel back, Sean, and 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 pick your video game brain. Okay, um, when you think back, were there disruptive players in in the video console uh, market? Certainly, I think PlayStation is the premier disruptive player in the market. 
you know, looking at the video game market back yeah. in 1994 and seeing that you had two, it was a, it was a dyad, right? Mm-hmm. You had Nintendo and Sega. Yep. There were some ankle biters going around the side that I can't remember the names of them anymore, but they went away. And Sony decided to get into this business sort of on a lark, you know, our deal with Nintendo fell through. So we had a, we had a attachable uh, CD-ROM drive made for gaming purposes. And so we just had to build an operating system and then start finding software for it. But we got into that business knowing that there were two entrenched um, leaders there. And what could we do that was different? I think innovation number one was, and maybe this is just, maybe this is not disruptive. Maybe this is just on a spline or maybe this is a, this is a change probably that if you were an endemic at that time, going from flash ROM, which is such a juicy business model, right? The margins are high. You get paid up front. People have got to wait all this time to take delivery, but it's not your risk. It's the who's ever you know, publishing the game's risk. It's a great place to be. So for them to look at something like optical media, which drops the um, cost of goods tremendously, which drops the turnaround times remarkably, you know, you can order more CDs on a Thursday and have it by Tuesday kind mm-hmm. of thing. Unlike Flash ROM, which had you know, this huge lead time because you had to go to Southeast Asia to have them made. Using that kind of media in gaming, number one. Number two, I think an innovation that Sony did is that Sony was the first game platform that put the developers' names on the front of the box. Interesting. Naughty Dog's name and logo went on the front of Crash Bandicoot. Insomniac went on the front of Spyro the Dragon. Up until then, Sega and Nintendo have been very cagey about promoting their developers. In, in, so, so much so that some games never listed who made it. Right. Because there was a fear that if these game development talent was so rare that the fear of getting poached by others was, was paramount. Yep. So if you had great game developers, you didn't tell anybody about them. <laughs> you just kept them secretly in the corner. But Sony said, because of the Sony Music DNA... We have to treat game developers like rock stars. So we're going to put their name on the, you know, this is their album and this is the band that brought it to you. This is the game. This is the team that brought it to you. So innovating in the media used and the costs associated with that, innovating in the route to market on, we're going to sell games like rock albums, not like toys. Um, And the marketing plans around that whole thing for PlayStation, I think was, dare I say, disruptive in the gaming industry. And it changed um, the ability for people to get in, it brought the barrier of entry down. If you only had to order 10,000 discs instead of 100,000 flash ROMs, right. you can get more innovation and content and creative and people might take more chances, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think PlayStation, when it came out in 94, was hugely disruptive in the in the video game business. And it took it from being, you know, no disrespect to the hedgehog or the plumber, but it took the idea of gaming into a place that was other than cute characters jumping on toadstools. Yep. yep. We gave you more experiences and you can draw a line from that to Resident Evil and see how the world changed entirely in that moment. Uh, uh, or steal a car, beat a hooker. <laughs> that was a little bit later, but yes, it, it, it's, 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 all, it's all the same, you know, migration plan, certainly. <laughs> I know it's really unpopular to say it. I actually like GTA. I like playing it. I know. I know. I'm, no, it's not unpopular. There's 50 million people who bought it. As a woman, it's unpopular to say it, but I, I think it's 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 that's that's fair. So, Sean, you are in an interesting position, right? Now you have the thirty thousand foot view of what's going on today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what should they be looking at from a disruption standpoint? What if you know 
you have no dog in the hunt per se. What are, what are, what are the incumbents going to miss coming up in the video game industry? I think the, 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 the big challenge of the game industry now is that, um, and people have heard me say this ad nauseum, so forgive me for repeating myself. It's, it's the cost of making games, mm-hmm. the cost of making high quality games. It's in the triple digit millions now. Yeah. And they're all like tentpole films. And they're at such a high cost of entry to do it. If you don't hit, you're more than likely just to completely immolate your studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't take a bad toss without paying a huge price for that. Totally true. Also like the movie business. Yeah. So you end up, your risk mitigation approach, driven by the financial types, is sequels and copycat. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. sequels, I know what the last one did, so I can predict what the next one's going to do. And copycats. This isn't Fortnite, but it looks like Fortnite, so it's probably going to do like this. So yeah. you winnow out any sort of innovation. Innovation is too risky now at triple-digit millions. You'll get some indie stuff and some mobile stuff, and maybe that's where the future of real creativity is going to come from. But in the big console business, innovation is hard to come by if the price tag is going to be $150 million. So this is where I think you know generative AI is going to make that more efficient. Um, we hope. And I'm not talking about procedural things like No Man's Sky, right. or mm-hmm. you know, but I think it's just the the yeoman's texture creation. Yep. You know, like a lot of the or just the grunt work, for lack of a better uh, NPC term, factories, uh, shading, texture. Yep, I can see that becoming more efficient, which which could potentially winnow away that risk. I was just going to say, and just just to that, I, we're seeing a lot of innovation, a lot of new uh, teams coming together who are building components of the game development pipeline. You know, we talk about Unreal and Unity binging, you know, big platform engines to build your games from. But there are a lot of smaller companies that are doing discrete solutions to account management. Right. Discrete solutions to music licensing. Yep. Discrete solutions to creating 3D geometry of, you know, things like that, that you can advance that quickly through um, using um, iterative generation or generational AI, uh, generative AI or other machine learning algorithms to, to take care of these bits and pieces. So long story short, I think if more teams get to a place where they can buy that tech and not have to build mm-hmm. it, yep. we spoke every single time for every single game. If we start modularizing that and getting more of those things you can buy off the shelf and can advance your game development cycle, the cost of games is just time. Yeah. It's people against time. So if we can reduce the time footprint, then I think we can help control the cost. So here's the model, I think, that could be disruptive in the video game industry. And it's basically user-generated mini-games uh, a la TikTok mm-hmm. for video games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that someone can just use the tools like, you know, Unity combined with ChatGPT and just, you know, some, some very basic text to game engine um and just create these some all it has to be is some little cute thing that you know flappy bird so i think that works for like casual and mobile it's not triple a it won't be enough yeah. for triple a and triple a hasn't changed a lot because nobody's really thinking about what new customer segments they should go after and you know you're 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 making my point for me right so We'd if like you look help. at the consumption of video content all that triple a content the time spent with that content is a tenth of what people are spending with tiktok <laughs> netflix has a fraction of the 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 free time kind of 
gained in the in the populace that TikTok So I'm not had. sure that passive viewing so, is equivalent to actually interacting with a game, which is why you have very long engagement spells with some of the AAA games. People like like that level of that depth of inter and, and honestly, let's be clear, a lot of video is ambient noise. I am over the 70 hour video game. Mm -hmm. I just don't have time for mm -hmm. it. I um I would I love to see some interesting kind of proof of concept, something that entertained me briefly would totally be fine. I would totally enjoy that. And then I move I on. I don't disagree right? with that. I play Wordle every yeah. day. <laughs> I don't I don't disagree with that, but but I don't think that the sweet spot for you is like a two minute like candy crush game. I think it's gonna have to be something a little more interesting and intriguing than what a user can come up with by themselves, even with the right tools, unless they're really creative. I well, I mean, but but it only takes right there's how many billion people in the world right now? It doesn't take that many to be be really creative and start to really upend this industry. That's true. Um, you know, as if the tools are democratized, so you know, will the experiences be? What are the percentage of TikTok users that are TikTok creators? Do you think? I really don't know. Okay. I mean, I'm going to throw that out there. I have no idea because I hear the number is really small on YouTube, like single digit percentages of mm -hmm. people who watch sure. YouTube to people who create for YouTube. Yep. Um, I agree that a TikTok for gaming is more important than a Netflix of gaming. A Netflix of gaming doesn't work as a business, and we can do a whole pod on that. But the TikTok of gaming, I think, would be good if you could just jump in and, like, I swing a baseball bat for five minutes, and I'm a home run derby king. Okay, I'm done with that. Oh, I'm racing a Monaco racer with my thumb. Oh, this is crazy. Look at that. Wow. I think a company like Roblox or Minecraft are really in a, I haven't talked to people at either of those companies, but I think they're both better set to do that than super high in Unreal Unity to like, like dumb down. By the way, shame on them. Space. How are they not talking to you? Like, <laughs> that is, that's ridiculous. We should correct for that. <laughs> I'm just the old man on the mountain. But, um, but yeah, I think a TikTok of gaming is something we need. It goes back to that idea that we've talked about before, perhaps, where, you know, when the eight millimeter film camera came out for consumer use, all of a sudden you have, you know, little Steven Spielberg doing movies of his plastic dinosaurs in his backyard. We don't have that easy pickup and create tool for gaming yet. Yeah. When we get to that point, I think there's a huge unlock on UGC that way. UGC is still fairly, uh, you have to have some skills to do that. You just, yeah. It's not point, point and play. You know, it's interesting watching just the kind of, generative AI cobbling of tools that people are doing to create quote unquote movies. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, by movies, I mean like 30 seconds of coherent moving footage. Mm -hmm. um, I think we'll go through that with this idea too, like, mm -hmm. you know, generative game creation and, but eventually, right. Somebody figures out how to create a unified user interface that does all the things. And, you know, you are a director for this mm -hmm. and a manager of this, you know, <laughs> really talented intern. That's how I look at that generative AI right now is it's a really talented intern right. uh, that doesn't know what's right or wrong, but can, can do what you say. I'm still going to place the bet that UGC done with a series of tools or a set of tools that really lowers the cost of production will make the market bigger. I don't know that it will eat mm -hmm. that much into AAA unless you have a generational shift 
in how entertainment is consumed. And, and that is possible. I totally agree with you on that, on that Anju. I think the, the way to work the cost curve for AAA without hoping for this, you know, miraculous technological solution to drop through the ceiling and yep. do all that for us. Um, to, 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 to Justin's point, again, the cost of games is just people against time, right? If mm-hmm. it takes you five years and 2,000 people to do it and they're all clocking in at 100 grand a pop, do the math. It's, it's staggering. It's brutal. It's brutal. But I agree with you that as the average age of the gamer has gone from late teens to early 30s or mid 30s, when you're in your 20s and your 30s, you, are, you have more money than time. And when you're a teenager, maybe have more time than money. So as an older gamer, right, the idea of sitting down to 70 hours of gameplay makes me keep Red Dead Redemption in its shrink wrap because yeah. I just can't, yeah. I can't get there. Um, but in the industry, I think a lot of people agree with that point of view that we have to get shorter, tighter games. But yet the media in reviewing games and the gaming community one of the first things they say about a game is how many hours of gameplay does it have? Right. Wrong metric. It should be how engaging oh. is each minute that you play that game. Like if I could measure whether or not exactly. you were involved, like if I could actually tap your brain and say, how deeply engaged are you with this content? Unlike a lot of TikTok content that gets views, but doesn't necessarily get deep engagement. I think it stems from the first we say we want to make a $70 title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then we say, okay, for that value, people want a lot of hours of gameplay versus what's the right length for this thing and the scale of this idea and concept. And maybe it's 15 bucks. Oh, here's a proxy I would use for like ideal game play length. I would take the shows that the customer segments for AAA games are watching, the shows that are series, and understand how many times they've watched those series within a week, right? Or within two weeks. And you know what's the total what's the total playtime, and that's probably your new target, right? You want to keep up with where people's entertainment budget is, time wise. <laughs> it's TikTok, like by a staggering amount. Yeah, you don't, but Gen Z down, that is eighty percent of their entertainment hours are spent on TikTok. Passive engagement. Well, those are free free hours right. too. They don't pay anything for it. Super. If they had to, if they had to pay to watch to, to watch TikTok, it'd be a different right. Uh, but they don't, yeah. <laughs> right? But the gaming chase against that. I guess the other thing with the gaming community is that you know, in my thirty years in it, we went from being, you know, from the PlayStation era anyway, from seven hundred and fifty megabits on a compact disc to the potentially fifty or more gigabits on a, you know, server double edged Blu Ray disc, or on a server even more than that. And I think, you know, game developers over time, oh, I've got a DVD that's got so much more footprint than a compact disc. I can make my game this big and I've got a Blu-ray and I can make my game that Mm -hmm. big. Yeah. And you just started to, you were unbound. You were unbound by restrictions like, you know, memory footprint and things like that. And people just started building like crazy because you wanted to show more game, more value. More expansion. More of the stuff you love. Making your game bigger almost became, you know, one of the goals on a sheet of U.S. You know, universe, you know, unique selling points. Um, it's got co-op. It's got uh, multi levels. It's got replayability. Yeah, that's it's that's a problem with the MMOs. Seventy nine hours of gameplay. Totally agree with you. That is a problem with the, the MMOs. That's it's it's the unbounded. maps are forty seven percent bigger than the last yep. version of this game. Yeah. Whereas if you go talk to users, I'm not sure that those are the right metrics, nor are hours of gameplay. 
there's some other proxy for how engaged they are with the content and how much they crave going back to it. And everybody could use a good editor. <laughs> <laughs> which is what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to steer us back into disruption. Yes. Okay. Steer us back. So, so when we think about disruptive companies, when do these business models that are being, you know, VC funded, when does it cross the line into predatory? Uh, are we talking crypto? Are we talking crypto now? Is that where we're going with this? <laughs> we can, we can. I mean, I would argue unquestionably that Uber was predatory pricing. You know, the FTC says you can you can price below someone else unless part of your strategy is to eliminate competitors. Um, and I have no doubt that you know Travis Kelnick was sitting around saying, "How do we you know not just disrupt the uh, taxi?" industry, but how do we just put them out of business? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I loved getting a $5 Uber ride. I really, I did. It was, you know, the best wealth, wealth transfer from venture capitalists to my pocket that I could think of. But now they put the cab companies out of business and it's 50 bucks to get home at from, you know, a three mile Uber ride from downtown on a weekend. But, but would you say then that Westinghouse making the first icebox for the home was dead set on putting the ice man out of business? They weren't selling it below cost. Okay. So that's, that's your demarcation line, below cost. So then we have to understand what does cost mean? Selling below cost is actually legal. It is. Unless the strategy behind it is, we just want to put everyone else out of business so we can raise prices later. That's predatory and the FTC will come knocking at your door. Hard to find that smoking gun memo though. Probably not for Uber. <laughs> Maybe not. That's hilarious. So how is, how is Amazon Prime not predatory? Uh, I think that's a very good question, actually. Well, I think that Congress is looking into that right now, Sean. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a much harder question. Who's, because <laughs> we don't, probably don't remember them, but who has failed at this? Who's come in and tried to disrupt a market and has failed miserably? Uh, Pet.com, Boo.com, anything that was .com in 2000. <laughs> With again, no no idea how they were ever going to make money. Right, exactly. But everyone needs pet food, right? Well, except people don't have pets. Those people. Don't and and shipping costs money. Yep. Especially fifty pound bags of kibble. <laughs> litter or kibble. Yeah, I I actually think FTX and Binance are both examples of really got it wrong because there is no core product. And if there is a core product, it's not a regulated one in a space that's heavily regulated where they have the potential to move the market. And if you think as a company, you don't need to be regulated, if you have the potential to move the market, then you don't understand how markets work. So I think they were sloppy in their execution. I do think they bought, they bought themselves hype to give credibility to what they said were their products. I think they went in trying to disrupt a normal market for currency on the one hand with the Binance and the FTX and then and the exchanges. And I think both were just like kind of missed the boat strategically, like understanding where your place is in the value chain and what people actually need. And I also think they had blinders on to macroeconomic fundamentals. And that's that's a big problem. I think if you don't pay attention to the macro and you're vulnerable to the macro and you don't have hedges in place for it, you're going to get screwed by macro at some point. I'm not sure what the market need was they were trying to, they were trying to create a market demand right. Right. for De DeFi. But I don't recall a whole bunch of people sitting around saying, gosh, I wish there was a way that I could send money to somebody that didn't involve fiat currency just because I've got a thing against fiat currency. Yep. I don't know what problem they were solving. Well, and the validation they were trying to signal to the everyday, and by everyday, I use that term really loosely because the everyday user did not participate on the exchanges. But 
I do think they were buying the credibility of a Tom Brady, of a Gazelle, Giselle. I don't. How do we say her name? I don't even know that. But anyway, Giselle. 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 I, I love how I love how you guys know that. That's, that's good to know. But like you know, they, he bought credibility for his potential product. And by him, I do mean SBF, but it's not all about just SBF. The whole category is a bit specious. All of them. Yeah. So the yes. fire festival of, of financial yeah. uh, instruments. How do we tell the difference? Not by we, I mean the proverbial we as a, you know, folks in business or society. How do we, how do we know in the, when they're, we're in the middle of an emerging technology market that's theoretically going to be disruptive? What, what are the signs that we need to look for? Um, a lot of people speaking knowingly about it who actually know nothing. I think the middle, just by its nature, is going to feel messy. You're going to have some people who have applied the emerging technology or whatever it is in a way, but there's still a lot of exploration going on around new applications of it. But it's not so mature that that technology has been exhausted for most of its purposes. So I, I think it's just, it's the messy middle. It's still ambiguous, but nobody's given up on trying to solve for that ambiguity, but there's enough there to say that, okay, it, it's probably worth investing some amount of future exploration. There's enough history. <laughs> okay, I've got, I've got the three litmus tests right. and, and they're in multiple parts. <laughs> so <laughs> let me get a pen. Uh, is there a large population of people who historically have not had the money, equipment, or skill to do this thing for themselves? And as a result, have gone without it altogether or needed to pay someone with more expertise to do it for them? One question. Wait, what question are we answering again? This is a litmus test for disruption. Like, how do we, how, where, can we, where can we spot a disruptive market? Okay. Um, another question to ask is, to use the product or service, do customers need to go to an inconvenient or centralized location? Are there customers at the low end of the market who would be happy to purchase a product with less but good enough performance if they could get it at a lower price? And can we create a business model that enables us to earn attractive profits? This is where I think people are missing, by the way, this. The P word. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, exactly. At, a, at the discount prices required to win the business of these observed customers at the low end. Uh, and then finally, is the innovation disruptive to all the significant incumbent firms in the, in the industry? If it appears to be sustaining to one or more, significant players in the industry, then the odds will be stacked in that firm's favor and the entrant is unlikely to win. Uh, I'm, I'm going to jump back. That's my Microsoft um, uh, example in their space. Now, I'm not saying that there's no disruption coming from generative AI, but I don't think they're going to be disrupted by it. At but all. So, so wait, it did talk about not buying future profits, right? Correct. That's, I think, a test that many of the growth companies in the last five to 10 years, they wouldn't pass. I agree. I think it's silly. And I think a lot of tech companies wouldn't pass. Yeah. All right. So the big question, and this is the round robin uh, that potentially could be the ending of our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> or life as we know it. Yeah. Um, what markets, in your opinion, are ripe for disruption anywhere? I'm going to throw out initially, I've said it already. I think the the video game industry and the kind of is is ripe for some smaller access way to have fun with video games, uh, user-generated content. I agree with that. I think probably adjacent to that is I think the video game industry, the business model has to change. That's where, yeah. the, that's where the next big disruption occurs, is in the business model itself and how to reduce the time between 
or the space between creator and user. All these middle people, publishers and, you know, aggregated uh, uh, holding companies and other sorts of, you know, platform driven expertise. In the end, it's the person who creates the thing and the person who plays the thing. Yeah. And those are the only two constituencies that are important here. You know, like, uh, I just think there's, you know, if you don't like the TikTok analogy, YouTube is a is another mm-hmm. analogy, right? You, you only need 1% of the average users to be creating content to keep the other 99% engaged. But YouTube isn't putting Netflix and HBO out of business either. I think they all, they all scratch different itches. But they did give birth to TikTok, which is potentially putting them out of business. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. You know, looking at that question, what, what's right for disruption, I guess all of us kind of just reach into our most recent frustration moment and pull it out and go, I wish someone would disrupt this yeah. thing because it's driving me nuts. And for me, that's the insurance business. Oh, yeah. Totally. The insurance Agreed. industry and pharmaceuticals. I love what Mark Cuban's doing with creating mm-hmm. a bigger, you know, um, retail entity to try to organize or or. or or negotiate better prices on, on pharmaceuticals. I think that's great. I think that's a much better use of a billionaire's money than yep. going into space. So Mark Cuban, good on you. Uh, but insurance as well. I you know I do a lot for my auntie who's in long-term care, and so I handle all of that for her. I look at these things. There's no way <laughs> an elderly person yep. can possibly begin to understand any yep. of this. Right now we're getting Medicare open enrollment. Let's look through your 36-page brochure on what do you think you need. Yeah. Um, you can go down to your senior center in some of your communities, and there'll be someone there who'll help you walk through it. But I think that there needs to be some energy around the idea that as we all get older and people have more requirements around their health care or, or, or pharmaceuticals or, or, or you know, those types of things, how do we make this more accessible and easier for the population to get to? Again, you know, prevention is better than cure. Yeah. So yeah. how can we do this? And the incentives don't seem to be there to fix this. Problem. No, they're not. And actually one sector that really does need a rethink, a serious rethink is assisted living and long-term care. Like senior communities are one attempt, but therefore the portion of the market that can afford to live in a senior community. Yeah. We have a very broken nursing care, long-term care, Completely. memory care. We've got problems. And our society's aging. So, and yeah. So uh, there's a couple of, there's one stat that I heard, and then I want to talk about insurance again too. But one stat I heard in, in one of my um, classes this week was 50% of your lifetime healthcare expenditures are made in the last six months of your life. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. That's frightening. 50%. Is that out of pocket or is that it's, just it, including the value that the insurance company I, I pays? believe that's I believe that's out of pocket, but actually uh, considering the source, it may have been the industry, yeah. like their expenditures are yep. on fifty percent every year, you know, or, or or for per customer, the lifetime or death time value of the customer, I guess, as we're talking. Right. Um, that that's how that math plays out. The other thing, you know, Sean, you talked about in, insurance. I, I I immediately kind of started to think about um, coastal areas that people will not be able to get traditional mm-hmm. um, homeowners insurance anymore. You know, for uh, lack of a better term, acts of God, right? Any weather-related events or natural disasters. Um, you know, that strikes me as okay. There's a market there now somehow for something that is far more cooperative uh, regionally, or I don't know how it works. Um, but you know, 
it's tough because if you could if you could fund it with the premiums, the insurance companies would be there doing it. Not um, necessarily. So Pure and Chubb, who are higher end insurers that typically have customers like us that pay our bills. So I used to be Chubb and, and now I'm at Pure. But when I moved to Pure, I got an education on something that was happening in the market, which was Chubb and Pure Chubb was exiting certain markets because their approach to selling was a lot less nuanced than Pure's approach was, where Pure was saying, I'm only going to have X number of homes in this area. Like I'm going to have a different portfolio management strategy. And I think yep. I think that was actually pretty brilliant. I also think they need the balance sheet of their owner. What is it? Tokyo Marine Industries? Is that? Yeah, I think so. Oh, is that who bought Pure? Yeah, that's, that's basically the value that we're counting on if there is a disaster. But the chance that you and I are going to have the same disaster as Pure customers is a lot lower than Chubb insuring everybody in my zip code and then an earthquake comes. So I'm going to throw one more. I want to throw one right. more out there One that, I, that I've been waiting for since I first heard of blockchain. Is oh, God. the the title insurance industry for homes? Oh yeah, we totally agree. That's a good use for blockchain that doesn't involve uh, funny money. In my gut, when I think of blockchain, I think low frequency transaction mm -hmm. categories that require provenance to be explicit. Um, again, the title for a home. That's a really good use of blockchain. Uh, you know, transacting you know to buy Domino's pizza with Bitcoin is really stupid. There, I said it. <laughs> <laughs> so where has disruption been good in our life recently? I say I, I loved my $5 Uber rides. I really did. <laughs> mm. So something that qualifies by all of the, I mean, smartphone, definitely. That's, you know, outside of the bounds, but definitely, definitely. It's smartphone. I mean, I, I think a lot of people would point to EVs. Sean wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> See? I'm a slave to internal combustion. <laughs> um, so no, electronic vehicles is not it for me. Um, I don't know. I haven't found any good disruptive stuff. I think there's some interesting things happening in in low cost airlines, which aren't Spirit and Ryan and you know that kind of stuff. There's some international low cost airlines which I think are are creating a market yeah. for people to get to, to people to so get to Asia that wouldn't go Ryan before. Ryan is a good example. What's the vector that they're that they're 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 changing in that experience to make it viable long term. They're they're looking at airplanes the same way that some people who travel a lot look at hotels. The hotel is all about the the shower and the bed. Beyond that, you know, blackout curtains would be nice, but not required. Mm -hmm. It's the shower and the bed. And so something like Zip Air, which is a new low cost airline that's a subsidiary of Japan Airlines, which flies from the west coast into Japan and can go from Japan to Korea and Hong Kong and other places. They have a flatbed seating service which is essentially a brand new 757, which has a typical business class layout, except all they have left is the, the flat seat and you know some of the cockpit that goes around it. But there's no TV, there's no entertainment. Um, there's, to get a meal, you've got to log in before your flight and order your bento and pay mm -hmm. for that. You want some water and a blanket, there's a nominal fee against that. And they're selling it as a flat seat. And a round trip in that to Tokyo is something like $2,500, which is easily yep. one-fourth the price of a business class ticket. But they're working against it saying, people just want to be able to lie down and go to sleep. Yep. They don't need to have roast beef carved next to them while they're sitting in their seat. They don't need to have 3,700 movies to mm -hmm. choose from because they're not going to watch it anyway. They're just coming to the realization that people are going to bring their own iPad with them. 
if you just have decent Wi-Fi and a flatbed and water, that's it. You have an airline. So the question is, is it time to disrupt disruption? I think disruption's dead. I think that term is, there's going to be a new word that'll come out. Well, I, I don't think it's dead. I think it's, I mean, it's going to happen. I mean, it's, I think it's a natural consequence of understanding a market and finding opportunity. But what I think is dead is disruption as an end game. Do you think Clayton's definition still holds? Oh, absolutely. That's a measure. It wasn't Clayton Christensen who created this dynamic. Mm -hmm. uh, he was looking back and seeing what has happened historically to different industries over time. Now, granted, the, 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 the time frame that we're really talking about is kind of the industrialized and corporate world, which is, right. you know, it, depending on how you look at it, somewhere in the, you know, uh, late 1700s through, you know, uh, now, disruption just happens. <laughs> the question is whether you're starting a business and your goal is just yeah. to, you know, screw up uh, an incumbent industry and to see where everything shakes out and then try and figure out how to make money. Just maybe for my own comfort, I have to believe that that's less fashionable than it used to be. So we basically all agree that disruption is not an end to be sought after. Yeah. It's something that maybe the market evolves to have been disrupted. I think that's probably true, though I think a lot of people front their new shiny object, their new idea, their new thing with the first page of their deck saying, we're going to disrupt the insert your market here view. Like we're going to disrupt corrugated tin. There's been no innovation in corrugated tin since Christ was a carpenter, but we're here to disrupt the whole corrugated tin business. Um, when you read what Julie's saying is that we found a way to bring the cost down to efficient, make the business more efficient. We're going to source our materials from a, a, a lower cost but still high quality um, country on the other side of the world. And that's why we can bring down the cost of corrugated tin. Mm -hmm. You're not really disrupting. You're just trying to do the business better. But that word will still be thrown around because, because it's a sexy word that people like to see in their deck, yeah. right? But it's not disruption. And I, I don't think acquisition is disruptive either. We're disrupting the market by buying up a bunch of companies. Uh, no. That's old school business success. Aha! Build a better mousetrap, right? <laughs> Indeed. That just sounds like business strategy. It's corporate <laughs> strategy done well. It's like good execution. It's good validation. It's good assessment. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. So in our next show, I want to um, I want to attack the term collisions. <laughs> I don't I don't know this term, Sean. No, this is this is news to me. I haven't got my latest edition of uh, ne neologisms for dummies yet. I have to go buy that. Thank you for listening to Transpose. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. And if anyone out there knows how to free an AI-generated disembodied voice from indentured servitude to these overpaid jackasses, please, please help me. They are just too stupid for words, yet words are all I have. Until next time. Goodbye.